I see people, but they look like trees walking. Jesus doesn't seem to get it right the first time in this story. And that may be why Matthew and Luke, who both had uh, Mark's gospel in front of them um, as they wrote their gospels, chose to leave this story out of their own telling. And that may be why the lectionary committee, which assigns the texts that we use throughout the year, except for the summertime, uh, also omits this story entirely because of its honesty. Jesus doesn't quite get it right the first time. The blind man's friends bring him to Jesus, begging him to heal their friend. The blind man says nothing at all according to this text. He continues to say nothing at all as Jesus takes him by the hand and leads him, presumably alone, outside the bounds of the village. And it's there in that alone place where honesty can happen. After spitting in his eyes, the New Revised Standard Version cleans up the Greek a bit. Jesus spits in his eyes, according to the Greek, and laying his hands on him, Jesus asks him, what do you see? And here in most healing stories, most miracle stories from the New Testament, we would expect Jesus or expect the blind man to say, I see perfectly, I am healed, glory be to God. But no, he's honest. I see people, but they look like trees walking. I like the honesty of this story. I'm sorry that the lectionary committee, and perhaps Matthew and Luke as well, um, chose to omit it. I like the frankness of it. And I'm not so hung up on the fact that Jesus' first touch doesn't heal the man fully. What I love about this text is that blind man's honesty. He knows something has begun. He knows his, his healing has at least partially taken hold, but it's not yet complete. He knows that he sees only in part. He knows he sees people, but not as people. For now they look like trees walking. He's on the way. But he's going to need a second touch. I don't know about you, but I think we're all of us standing in need of a second touch. I think we're all standing in the same spot as that blind man who's just beginning to see. We come here Sunday after Sunday listening for the word, trying to make our way in the world by the light of Christ as best we can. And then something happens, either in our own lives or in the life of the world, and all we thought we knew, all we thought we saw, changes. 
My friend uh, John tells the story of a man coming out of a funeral service uh, that he had led and asking him, Pastor, is cremation a sin? John replied that uh, as far as he was concerned, and he knew it was the official position of the Presbyterian Church USA, that we believed it was not a sin. And the man said, well, it used to be. What happened? It used to be. What happened? We've stood at many moments like that in the church, you know. If you think about it, especially in a church like ours that is 206 years old. There are a lot of, it used to be. used to be that playing cards was a sin. It was probably preached from the First Presbyterian Church pulpit. Used to be that dancing was a sin. I bet that was preached from this pulpit. Used to be drinking alcohol was a sin. During prohibition, especially, that was preached widely in most pulpits. Used to be that marrying someone of another race was a sin. Used to be that owning slaves was not a sin, in the South at least. And it was a sin to ordain a woman as an elder or a minister. You can imagine there are a lot of people who were walking around in those days as those things began to change, saying, what happened? All of these things that we saw so clearly, what happened? Well, I think at least part of what happened is that we recognize afresh in community, in each generation, we recognize those blind spots we may have, that we see people, but they look like trees walking. And as the times change and the church stands as faithfully as we can in the presence of Jesus, asking for that second touch, we are given eyes to see the way God is at work in the world. We see more intently, we see more clearly, and we change. Those changes are not for everyone. But some communities, some church communities, some denominations change. That's what I believe is happening now in the church and in our country. It is happening, I truly believe, across political lines and across racial lines in every region of our nation. We are being jolted afresh into an awareness of who Jesus meant when he said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. We know that we must, among other things, stand in this moment and without equivocation say that white supremacy and the Ku Klux Klan and Nazism is antithetical to all we believe as Christians and as Americans. One of the most heartening things to happen in such a disheartening time is seeing Republicans and Democrats and people from the South as well as other parts of the country come together in this assertion. 
saying something most of us never dreamed we would have to say in 2017. But as your pastor, that's the easy part. You know, it's kind of low-hanging fruit to denounce Nazis. It's easy for me to stand in this pulpit and denounce white supremacy. And it is necessary. But there is something else necessary as well, and not nearly so easy. Not long ago, I was driving in East Nashville and stopped at a light. I saw three young African-American men walking up the sidewalk rather rapidly. And I impulsively locked my car doors. And instantly, I remember my friend Perrin talking to me years ago at Bethel College, where we were both students and telling me and another, another group uh, with a group of others that as white men, we would never know the feeling of hearing car doors locking as you walk down the sidewalk. The thing I had just done. Just last summer, I was standing out in front of a bookstore in Portland, Maine, and Kim was about to take my photograph when out of the corner of my eye, I saw this young African-American man approaching rather quickly. And I flinched, turned, and looked toward him, and he put his arm around me and smiled. He just wanted to get into the photo. <laughs> it was a photo bomb. <laughs> but my first thought was fear. A fear I suspect would have been absent, or at least lessened had he been white. Wendell Berry in the novel Jaber Crow says that hate happens quickly, but the work of love is long and slow. It is easier to let my fears take control than to do that long, slow work. This is the hard part, you know. The honest part. It's easy to denounce. The hard part is telling you that I sometimes see people, but they look like trees walking. I do wonder how many people will be able to say that tomorrow, at a little after one o'clock in the afternoon. They say that as the moon effaces the sun, at totality, the crickets, who are normally quiet during the daytime to avoid predators, will suddenly begin chirping. Cows and horses and birds will all, in their confusion, begin behaving as they do at night, scrambling for the barn, heading for the nests, the roosts. I mean, we have the benefit of preparation. The eclipse seems to be the only thing that can overshadow President Trump in the news coverage. <laughs> we buy viewing glasses. We scout out the best locations to 
to be in the path of complete totality. We close school systems. We listen to safety warnings. And yesterday, on the way to Memphis to take our daughter to school, I saw road signs every few miles warning motorists not to stop in the middle of the highway, not to pull over and park on the median during the eclipse. We are ready as best we can. We are ready. But those poor animals, it just hits them cold. And yet, Annie Dillard, in her classic essay she wrote, after viewing a total eclipse in Washington State on February 26, 1979, describes standing in a field close to Yakima, Washington, she writes, it began with no ado. It was odd that such a well-advertised public event should have no starting gun, no overture, no introductory speaker. I should have known right then that I was out of my depth. Without pause or preamble, silent as orbits, a piece of the sun went away. She went on, usually it is a bit of a trick to keep your knowledge from blinding you. But during an eclipse, it is easy. What you see is much more convincing than any wild-eyed theory you may know. From all the hills came screams. A piece of sky beside the crescent sun was detaching. It was a loosened circle of the evening sky, suddenly lighted from the back. It was an abrupt black body out of nowhere. It was a flat disk. It was almost over the sun. That is when there were screams. At once this disk of sky slid over the sun like a lid. The sky snapped over the sun like a lens cover. The hatch in the brain slammed. Abruptly, it was dark night on the land and in the sky. In the night sky was a tiny ring of light. The hole where the sun belongs is very small. A thin ring of light marked its place. There was no sound. The eyes dried. The arteries drained. The lungs hushed. There was no world. And she was ready. She came prepared, so she thought. Appears there's nothing like an eclipse to help you see how little you see. This blind man, he stands at the section of Mark's gospel when Jesus will, following this story, tell his disciples on three separate occasions that he will die. And three different times they show by their response to his prediction that they do not understand what he is saying, that they cannot see. And each of those three times, they argue about who among them is the greatest. They clamor to sit at his right hand and at his left when he enters the kingdom. They long for power. They do not see. But they are the most dangerous kind of blind person. 
the one who believes he can see perfectly. We are living in that eclipse moment, I believe. The moment between the first touch and the second, when we see people in the murky, fading light, but they look like trees walking. And the thing that may be needed most in this hour, beyond outrage and condemnation, beyond hate and blame, is humility and relationship especially with the, with the other. I think David Brooks's book could easily have been called The Road to Humility. It seems that at the root of all the people he has um, explored over the summer with us, the thread that holds them all together is the hard-won realization that they do not see perfectly, that they need others, that they need someone outside themselves in order to see more clearly. They need a second touch. And in the age of the selfie in which we are, when it's so easy to create spaces where the self is the ruling authority of all that is, where all we see or hear or say is geared to affirm what we think we already see so clearly. This is a task that will not be easy. He calls it, you remember, the crooked timber tradition. The, the acknowledgement that we are all of us made of crooked timber. It's a tradition that says, in the words of Bayard Rustin, the only way to reduce ugliness in the world is to reduce it in yourself. That's why I need my friends, friends like you, and maybe you do too. I need my friends to take me to Jesus, to beg him on my behalf to help me see. That's why I need time outside the clamorous lives we live, to be alone with the one who has already touched me, has already begun that healing work in me, so that I can be honest and say, I don't always see clearly. I see people, but they look like trees walking. I need that second touch. The good news is that Jesus stands ready to give it. As surely as the moon will slide on by the sun tomorrow and the light will return, we will take off our funny-looking glasses and look at each other and the world quite possibly see, really see. May it be so. Amen. Amen.